Welcome to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. This is your host, David Kaplan. In this episode, I have a lengthy discussion with North Carolina Central assistant coach, Nigel Thomas. DK. Nigel, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good, my friend. How are you doing? Another day in paradise. Another day in paradise. I appreciate this, man. Appreciate, I appreciate this. You uh, taking the time to be on the Beyond the Box Score podcast? Absolutely, absolutely. I had to I had to look it up and see what you know how it all originated. So I saw the tweets and stuff like that. So this is good stuff, man. I like it. I like it. Yeah, I figured. You know what? Everyone else is doing it at this point. We all have nothing but time on our <laughs> hands, so we might as well try to stay busy and educate us, uh, fellow coaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm open to whatever you let me know. Um, you know, you know, you know, our relationship, our friendship. So I'm no holes bar. So I'll just let it, you know, that's why I didn't want the, the, the questions beforehand. Cause I just think it's more, more genuine and, you know, real. Yeah, no doubt. And I appreciate that. Um, you know, first off, uh, you want to give yourself a little intro uh, I hate doing a canned bio. Right. So, Nigel, go ahead. Yep. Tell, us, tell us what you do. Yep. Um, name is Nigel Thomas. Um, I'm currently the assistant men's basketball coach at North Carolina Central University uh, here in Durham, North Carolina. But um, I'm in my, I just completed my 17th year coaching basketball. And um, I got blessed to get into the game. Uh, coaching junior college ball when I you know, gra- first graduated college. So I went to Langston University in Oklahoma, which is an NAI school in Oklahoma. Uh, graduated there in 2003. And then as soon as I graduated, I had the opportunity to go back to my hometown, which is um, Park Forest, Illinois, which is the south suburbs of Chicago. Uh, but moved out there, and I can get into that later, but moved out to the south suburbs. My mother and father got divorced at the age of 10. Um, but ended up going back to a junior college that was in my area, Prairie State College, which was a junior college division two. Um, so I got that start at 22 years old, uh, coaching college basketball as an assistant. And so I was an assistant coach there for five seasons. So from 2003 to 2008, then in 2008, I had the opportunity to go back to Langston University where I played to be an assistant coach for my head coach, Greg Webb. Um, and I was his assistant for three years. Um, and we had a downward spiral. If, if I could put that in any, any, any words clearer than that, just, you know, once I overtook the job as an assistant, we just, we had bad seasons. We went from eight wins to six wins to two wins my third year there. And then in my third year as an assistant coach, our AD wanted to make a change and he was going to let us go at the end of the season. And, um, my AD at the time, Patrick Simon, um, said, you know what, Nigel, I think that, uh, you know, if I let you guys go, I'm going to open up the job for the head coach. I'm going to open it up for a national search, but I think you should apply for it. And so um, I applied for the job. I put a whole packet, a whole binder together, a whole outline, a plan on how I was going to run the program if I had the opportunity to be um, named the head coach. And uh, it was a hundred and it was between 135 and 150 applicants for that job. And it ranged from area high school coaches to 
high school coaches in California, college assistants, Division One head coaches, Division One former head coaches. Uh, so I just knew that it was going to be a long shot for me to get that job. Um, that was almost like a two-week process. They narrowed it down to five finalists. All of us had an on-campus interview to sit be- you know, before the board of directors, administrators, uh, former players, and um, mid-July of uh, 2011, I was named the head coach of my alma mater school that I played for at 29 years old. And so I was the head coach at Lynx University from 2011 to 2014. Um, New administration came in, new athletic director came in, uh, and he claimed house. And I was probably one of the first coaches that he wanted to let go. He wanted to make a change, and I was fired. I was fired in April 1st, 2014, and I can get more into that later. But I'm just trying to give you the quick drive-through bio. Um, so I was let go April 1st, 2014, and from that point on, uh, for those couple of months, I was looking for a job. I was searching interview for a few jobs, a couple of jobs I was a finalist for and didn't get, um, a couple of jobs I was offered but just couldn't do it because my wife and I had two kids at the time. So from a, uh, from a, a financial standpoint, it just wasn't doable. And so I kind of had to turn those jobs down. And I was almost at my wit's end about what I was going to do next because it was becoming uh, close to the fall of 2014. So you're talking about August 2014. School was about to start. And I was throwing a lifeline based on a relationship that I had with a guy from Duke Camp. And I had done Duke Camp, working there as a camp counselor, camp coach, however you want to put it, uh, since 2010. I, and that's when I first met him uh, at Duke Camp. And he had a he had a job opening. So John Thompson, who was the current head coach at North Carolina Wesleyan College and Rocky Mountain, North Carolina Division Three program. Uh, his assistant at the time. Uh, a, a big John, correct? Not big John. Yes, yes, yes. So not big John Thompson, not Georgetown Thompson, but uh, they say it, the white John Thompson. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so him and I had a relationship, and it, it probably wasn't any more than a relationship of, of guys just catching up at camp, knowing each other, kind of followed each other throughout the year, but nothing really extensive. So um, in August of 2014, uh, my wife drove me to Rocky Mount. We were in Charlotte at the time because we had moved from Oklahoma, moved to Charlotte with her sister and her husband. And, you know, so bringing my family into somebody else's home, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out my next move was a humbling experience in itself. But uh, I interviewed, drove to Rocky Mount, spent the whole day with, with John Thompson, Uh, met some important people on campus. He picked my brain. He felt me out. And the next day he offered me the job. And so you're talking about a late August. I was, DK, I was about, I don't know, man, probably about saying, you know what, I guess this coaching thing is just not for me. We probably need to move back to Chicago. I'm going to go teach because I used to teach uh, kindergarten through eighth grade PE in Chicago. So I said, hey, I had a teaching certificate. Let me go back to Chicago teach find a way to feed my family. But uh, John Thompson gave me a job. So spent five years with him, had some success, uh, success, graduated players, three regular season conference championships. And I just learned a tremendous amount from him, competed against you at Catholic when you were there. Um, no, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> okay. All right. We, we crashed dead, so we didn't yeah. get to play. Yeah. We were 
<laughs> supposed to play. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. In you're our right. own tournament. That we yeah, your own tournament. That's what I mean. Yeah, in your tournament. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'll get to that. Don't worry. Get to, okay. And so, um, yeah. So spent, uh, you know, time with him. Learned a tremendous amount from him. Grew as a coach. Grew as a father. Grew as a husband. Grew as a man. And then, um, in April of 2019. I had the chance to interview with Lavelle Moulton here at North Carolina Central University. And so I uh, spent two and a half hours with him um, at a Firebirds restaurant uh, here in Durham and uh, spent it with him and another assistant. Uh, well, matter of fact, him and two of his assistants and spent two and a half hours in the restaurant. Uh, and I'll get into the relationship that we had because it wasn't much <laughs> before that uh, interview with him. Uh, he called me back probably about a week later, said, Nigel, that was a tremendous interview. However, I had already offered the position to somebody else. He accepted. But let's stay in contact. Let's just stay in touch. I think, you, you know, we continue to build our relationship, our friendship. Uh, let's stay in contact. And then fast forward to October of 2019, he had an opening on the staff, which was late. You talk about they already started practice. Um, we were about two weeks away from practice ourselves at Wesleyan because we can't start practicing until October 15th on a division three level. And um, he offered me the job and it was kind of a no brainer. John Thompson wouldn't even allow me not to take it. So took it, came into a great situation, had to kind of find my way, had to figure it out quickly because I got there late trying to figure out the culture, trying to figure out the players, just trying to figure out my role, uh, but had great success um tremendous year and when in the regular season MEAC championship uh we were kind of on our way I think we were hitting our stride we were playing well and then after our first round game uh, in the tournament uh we were prepping for our second round game and that's when we got hit with the announcement that they were going to cancel the tournament and here you go you know dominoes fall COVID-19 has hit us and season's over but uh that's kind of my you know, my path in a, in a short term, but uh, that's kind of where I am. Okay. So we'll kind of bounce through everything you said. And that was, a, that was a great rundown. Yep. So Nigel Thomas, the basketball player, when did you realize you had the talent to play college basketball? Ooh, um, great question. I always love the game. I mean, this is the only game that I played. I, I mean, I competed in cross country, growing up but uh story is my full name is nigel isaiah thomas that's my full name um i was born kind of the year after isaiah thomas had won the national championship uh I mean, i'm sorry he was heading into his year going into indiana so he was going into indiana as a student athlete but my father was aware of him and um being a Chicago guy, me being from Chicago, my dad had tremendous respect for him. My dad always loved the game. And he said, you know what? He told my mom, let's name his middle name Isaiah. Now, Isaiah spells his name differently. On the flip side, my mother's an ordained minister. So growing up in the church, uh, she said, okay, if we're going to name him Isaiah, then we probably need to put a biblical spin on it and spell it the way it's spelled in the Bible. So my name is Nigel Isaiah Thomas. So I think from the point I was born, I think I was kind of being groomed to, to play the game. To answer your question, uh, played 
ball all throughout my, my childhood. I think moving from Chicago, the city, you know, the inner city of Chicago where I live, and then moving to the suburbs, making a huge transition like that, probably in my fifth grade, sixth grade year, was tough for me because I had no friends out there. And I think the best way to kind of build relationships uh, <laughs> is to kind of compete in sports. And that's kind of how came friends when we moved because we kind of moved at an awkward time and kind of was you know close to the school year starting so i really had no friends in the neighborhood we moved into uh there was a park right across uh the street from our apartment complex my mother and i moved into and i would just spend every day out there and just every day just hooping just trying to play the game and then gradually people would come to the court and i kind of had to earn my respect i was a new kid on the block you know i was a scrawny little kid you know nobody knew me but I think I kind of earned it by just playing the game and just, you know, being out there all day. And from that point on, I just think that's what I wanted to do. And so that's all I did. And I only ran cross country to get me in shape to play basketball. Once I was doing it for junior high, I, you know, I did it in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I ran cross country just to be in shape for uh, junior high trials for basketball. And then when I got into high school, kind of, you know, did the same thing. So cross country is the only thing I did. Basketball is all I knew. It's, it's, it's what I talked. It's what I read. It's what I watched. It's all I talked about. Um, so it's always been a passion of mine, you know, from collecting basketball cards, knowing everybody's stats, knowing everybody's rosters on the NBA. I used to collect all the sporting news magazines, all the Street and Smiths would read those. My mother would get on me because she said, Nigel, you need to expand your, your horizons. You need to expand, you know, what you read, your thinking. And she tried to give me a couple of books to read when I was growing up, but I would always find a way to kind of put those to the wayside to go get a NBA hoops magazine, something basketball related. So it's just something that's always been in me. And, you know, just to be blessed to be in this game for 17 years now, you know, this is the only job I've had was to coach basketball since I've graduated college. So I'm 39 years old now, uh, 22 when I first started. So I'm just, I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm blessed just to be, around a game that I have so much passion for. So the listeners can go to the North Carolina Central website. Nigel is the youngest 39-year-old <laughs> I have ever seen. The guy looks like he's 20. Oh, man. To be in the league, like to be in college basketball for 17 years, yeah. I'm like, I'm like what, what do you start in elementary school? Like, <laughs> you know what? You know, I just and – I, and I used to get that all the time. Yeah, I wish I could, you know, I get – I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because when I'm talking to recruits, especially early on in my career, you know, some parents wouldn't take me serious. They thought I was a player, you know, and I just couldn't grow facial hair. I just looked like a baby. So um, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I'd rather not look old. So, you know, obviously this game has not stressed me out so much where I look like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Uh, so- I heard on a previous interview that you passed on a couple of Division Two and Division Three yeah. offers, and you walked on at right. Lewiston. Did you end up on scholarship by the time you graduated? I did. Um, so that situation was, so I ended up going to Langston University in Oklahoma. And the reason I made that choice was because um, coming from a single-parent household and raised by um, a black woman, uh, and by no means, I'm trying to say I had a I had a tremendous childhood. I was blessed to be around some tremendous people. And, you know, my family's kind of all women. Um, and my father was around. He just wasn't in the household. So he was around. Uh, my male figures were my coaches growing up. 
my male role models were my coaches. Um, and so I just thought for my own personal development and my own personal growth, it was probably best for me to go away. Um, far enough away where I can try to survive on my own and kind of grow and try to find myself. And uh, I picked Langston because Langston was kind of in our family. My older brother, um, he attended Langston University. I had an uncle who attended Langston University and Langston University is an HBCU in Oklahoma, the only HBCU in Oklahoma, probably in between Oklahoma University on one side and then Oklahoma State on the other. So it's kind of right dab in the middle, middle of nowhere. And so I selected there just because that I was kind of familiar with it. And I thought that, hey, um, if I do go there, at least I'll, you know, I, I may think about trying to, to find a way to get on. But that wasn't my intention. That wasn't my goal. The other schools that I had on me earlier, uh, recruiting wise, were all locals, you know, somewhere in Illinois, um, University of Chicago, which is a big time program, I think, uh, Division three. But that was probably, about, you know, 20 minutes from the house. That just wasn't far enough away from me. So that's why I chose Langston. And then, yeah, so yeah, I ended up kind of playing a rec center, which was kind of on campus. And that rec center was kind of the, the safe haven for all, all the guys to play after classes were over. You know, that's what pickup games were. That's what intramurals games were. And our assistant coach at the time, Jerome Willis, uh, he came in there and he was young at the time. He was probably, I don't know, maybe 29, 30. So he would want to come and get a run in. And, and every time he came in the gym, guys would go at him, you know, trying to prove like, hey, you know, they sold the coaches in here. Let me try to go at him or just trying to prove their worth and say, hey, and let me get a shot. And so I think I just did just enough to pique his interest for him to go back to, you know, to the head coach and say, hey, there's a guy in that rec center that we probably need to take a look at. And so they invited me into practice one time and uh, that one time turned into two times. And then after that, they kind of offered me a spot on the roster as a walk on. And so I didn't have a scholarship for that year. So that's what, that was a 1998-99 year, which is my freshman year. But then come 99-2000, um, I was offered um, tuition, room. So I think the only thing I had to pay for uh, was a meal ticket, which I eventually got. So that's kind of equivalent to a, to a full ride, which I eventually got um, by my junior and senior year. Now, did you have a detour during your – your career at the four-year Langston University? Yep, I did. And I think it was probably the greatest detour of my life because it was so instrumental to my growth and my um, development as a man, as a person, trying to find out my my path, my calling, my purpose. Um, so in the 2000 and 2001 school year, um, so um, 2001, uh, my mother said she you know she called me one day and she had received my grades because at that time grades were were sent home uh to parents in the mail you know when you're in school i think uh that's kind of changed now with the confidentiality rule oh, I am <laughs> yeah so <good>. <laughs> you know what i'm saying so with the with the hipaa rule and stuff like that but um so grades got sent home and i had not been doing well academically i was doing just enough to stay eligible but to my mother's standard because my mother is a big um, academic person, you know, so academics was always important to her and um, I just wasn't doing well. So I went from majoring in computer science to majoring in accounting and math has never been my strong suit. 
So imagine trying to major in accounting and computer science. That's nothing but math. And so um, I was struggling academically and she was married at the time. So uh, the guy she was married to at the time, I honestly felt that he came into my life for that season and that reason just to help me with this detour in my life. So she got the grades and she said, Nigel, I don't think that Langston is the best place for you right now because what you're doing, going on, you're not getting anything accomplished. Um, I wasn't really playing much uh, playing wise and my grades were suffering. Uh, I, I just think that they both saved me. They both saved me from trying to go to a place I just wasn't prepared to handle. So they told me to come home. So I went home uh, at the break of my sophomore year, um, well, which was really my junior year, but I went home at the break of my junior year, um, mid-year at December, and they told me it was time to come home. And I just remember it distinctly, having to clean out my apartment, having to pack up all my stuff, having to tell uh, the kids, you know, my peers on campus that I was leaving. They were like, whoa, what? Like, <laughs> are you serious? And it was almost like I failed. And I was embarrassed. I was, you know, not sure what was next. And then having to make that, you know, that 12-hour drive home, I, you know, drove home uh, 12 hours just trying to figure out what was going to happen once I got back to Chicago. What was I going to do? How was I going to explain that? Uh, to people, to my community, to my friends who were still there, um, to former coaches, what was I going to say? And, um, it, you know, it was honestly, I was kind of coming up with every excuse in the building about what I was doing. I was, you know, I came up with some excuse about me not being happy about playing time. So I was going to I was going to transfer. So I needed this uh, semester kind of go take visit somewhere. I was trying to make it like I was doing something big time. And that's not what it was. My mother said, come home. Her husband at the time said, come home, you're not getting the job done and you need to figure out what what you're going to do next. So I end up enrolling at. Uh, so Prairie State College, which is in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Um, and while I was taking classes, I remember the three classes that I took for that semester. Um, I took <laughs> I took. Well, it was only two classes. So it was a biology class. Basketball class. So it was a three hour biology class, one hour basketball class. I took it just to, you know, still get some some credits academically. But the relationship that I um, started in that basketball class, because the class was being taught by Robert Fairbank, who at the time was the athletic director and the head coach of the basketball team at Prairie State College. So I had him for that whole semester. Him and I formed a relationship. He kind of saw me playing in the class because we had to kind of play pickup and, you know, and kind of work on rules and officiate and stuff like that. And he said, whoa, you know, you can play a little bit. Um, the program had only been in its second year of existence. And so he was still trying to build the roster. And he asked me, Nigel, do you want to play? And I was like, eh, no. Nah. And that was just another prideful thing on my part where I didn't want to play because I I have to explain to people I went from an NAIA to a JUCO. I just thought that that was just, you know, a, a downward move. It, it was going backwards. And I didn't want to have to, you know, I didn't want to have to explain that to anybody. You weren't good enough to make an NAIA, so you had to come JUCO. That was my thinking at the time. And so he said, okay. Well, he said, let's just continue this relationship. He said, because in this class, you come you have knowledge of the game. And he said, I think you could have a future in coaching. And so at that point, I really never thought about coaching because I was still 
wrapped around wanting to play. I want to, you know, I think we all, anybody who's played this game, have all had aspirations of playing professionally. Um, so it's still going to be a goal of mine. Um, but I think at that point, since he put that little, he planted that seed in my head about coaching, um, from that point on, I, I think that was something I wanted to explore because I had to come up with a game plan to my mom and to her husband at the time because what I really wanted to do, I wanted to go back to Langston. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to finish what I started. I wanted to go back there, continue to play. I wanted to get my degree from there and show everybody that I could get it done. And so um, I got a B in that biology class. I got an A in that basketball class. I wrote out a whole plan on what I was going to do academically, how I was going to handle my stuff, you know, what I was going to major in now. And that's kind of where it started. That's kind of where my mind started going about coaching. And so changed my major to physical, edu physical education uh, and got a, you know, a teacher certificate along with it. And from there, uh, grades went up, ended up graduating, you know, finished my years. Each semester I had a either 3.2, 3.5, then I had a 4.0, <laughs> graduated in 2003. And then Robert Fairbank, the same guy that planted that seed in my head, offered me my first coaching job back at Prairie State College in the fall of 2003. So uh, coaching Juco, 22 years old. We had guys on that roster who were 25, 26. Imagine that, a 22-year-old coaching guys older than I was. So I was going <laughs> to how many players oh, man. older than It was about four or five, your... honestly. It was about four or five guys. Guys who had kids. One guy was married. Another guy who was in the service um, came back. He wanted to kind of start his college career. So um, trying to earn the respect of grown men, that was, that was a tough deal. That was a tough deal. How did you go, how did you go about um, that? I think I'm a firm believer, and I kind of used the same, and I didn't know it at the time, but – the role that Robert Fairbank gave me was, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what coaching really meant. You know, I think I would see coaches on the sideline on game days. Obviously, I played basketball, so I knew about practice. Um, but I think the best way to earn the respect um, is sweat with your players. And I kind of use that same mantra, you know, when I came – uh, to Central, and I'll get to that in a second. But I had to work those guys out because I kind of had to prove to them um, that, I, first of all, I was going to sacrifice my time. At that point, not married, no kids, so I had no responsibility. Um, I was teaching kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, but, you know, from 7.30 to 3.30, I was a, a PE teacher. And then from 3.30 for the rest of the day, I would spend at Prairie State College working guys out, um, the guys would come in, they would call me at random times of the night, say, Hey coach, I want to get in the gym. Can you come rebound for me? Can you come work me out? And I think at that point they kind of understood that I knew what I was talking about just a little bit, which I really didn't. But I think because I sweated with them, I was willing to sacrifice my time, willing to do whatever I could to kind of get them better. Um, I think they, they kind of started to trust me a little bit. And so I think that's how you kind of have to do it, especially, um, when you get thrown into a situation where, where your resume really doesn't speak for itself, nobody really knows you. And that was at the time when um, there wasn't really any Internet. So I don't think players at that point were fact checking, you know what I'm saying, coaches to see or Googling them to see what their resume was. Now players are doing that all the time. 
just like we're doing that for players. They're doing that for coaches too. Like, where'd this guy come from? Who is he coached? You know, what, what level has he been on? Have, have, has he coached winners? Um, but I kind of use the same thing when I got this job here at Central in October. Um, those guys didn't know me, and I'm sure in their mind they were thinking, what, man, this dude just came from Division Three. What, what makes him think he's going to come to Division One? Is he even ready for this level? And so, but I just felt like getting in the gym with guys, working them out, um, trying to help them improve is probably the quickest way to try to earn the respect of players. Okay. Now I definitely, when I saw that you got the job mm-hmm. in October about then, I was like, man, I know t- maybe two people that could get the respect and be effective. And you were one of them. I was like, if anybody can make it happen, Nigel. Can I appreciate that. You know, and trust me, I'm sure there are several hundred coaches over, you know, across the country who are more uh, capable, who have a, a, you know, thicker resume than I do. But this is just an example of how relationships, right time, right place, um, right relationship, right introduction, the right handshake um, the, and, and luck. <laughs> it kind of all put into play. And when situations like this, and um, I think that's one thing I try to preach to, you know, I hate to say younger coaches. I don't want to make it seem like I'm a, I'm an old vet, but um, relationships are so important in this business because every job that I've kind of fallen into or been blessed to receive, I've never applied for. It was because somebody knew me. Um, knew of me, somebody recommended me to somebody else to, to give me an opportunity. Every job that I applied for in this, in, in this profession, I never got. I never got. I, didn't even, I never even got an interview. And so that's why I think this is probably one of the very few, you know, professions where your resume, you know, can, is not always the, the, you know, be all, you know, to you getting the job. It's about what relationship, what connection have you made and your work ethic and what you put into it. And I think you're always on stage. Somebody is always watching you. Somebody is always observing you. Somebody is always trying to see, you know, how do you handle situations? And then that's that's kind of how you put your resume out there, your, your, your body of work on what you do on a daily basis, not a resume that you put in front of somebody's face. Agreed. Now, this is my last time I'm mm-hmm. going to go back to Langston yep. as a player. Yep. But I did a little research, a.k.a. Yep. looked on Wikipedia. And Jennifer Hudson attended yeah. LU for a semester. Yeah. Overlapped your Did you have any um, The only that? interaction I had with Jennifer Hudson while I was at Langston was she uh, performed in a talent show. Um, and she's a Chicago person as well, but uh, never had any interaction with her personally. But when I tell you that she killed, I don't even think she won, but she, when she got on stage, her voice just carried through the whole auditorium and, and she had that place up in arms and yes, yeah, it was there quick. I don't remember seeing her after that semester. Um, and now <laughs> look at her now. So that just goes to show you, yeah. like, Hey, you know, and, and another part, Chad Ocho Cinco went there for a semester as well. Yeah, and I remember really? seeing him as a um, as an incoming freshman. I think he ended up transferring to a a JUCO. He may, uh, and, you know, you might have to fact check me on this. I don't know if he went to Tallahassee, but 
uh, seeing a young Chad Johnson, Ocho Cinco on the football field, tossing balls up in the air to himself and running up under him to go get him. You know, that that's the one recollection I have of him. So, um, yeah, it's been some. <laughs> no, what did you say? No, what kind of hair did he have? Oh, no, back what then, did uh, back what did he have back then? It was kind of like a low even. Uh, you know, I don't think it was anything, <laughs> anything wild. Uh, yeah. No, 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 not at that point. Right. Not at that point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that you were on at PS College, uh, Prairie State, and I'm assuming that you've seen I haven't last, seen last chance you. Yep. Great show. <laughs> okay. Do you do you think that series portrays JUCO athletes in a realistic manner? Um, maybe some, not all. Um, I can only speak to my situation just because I was in it. Um, I was blessed to be around a situation where, um, we had some guys obviously who, who needed discipline. They needed discipline, um, from a academic standpoint, they needed discipline from a work ethic standpoint. But the thing about the Juco level that I really respect is all those guys are hungry. You know, they, they have a goal in mind. They're hungry to get to the next level. And the, the, the thing I really respect about Last Chance U and any JUCO program, any program where you have a, a young man for a year or two years is to get them to buy in that quickly and to have some success. And so um, I don't think it, it wasn't pulling teeth for, for me to get guys to go to class. Um, it, you know, the thing about our JUCO, we didn't have any dorms on campus. All these guys were commuting. And so uh, most of them were probably still at home with, with mom and dad. Um, obviously, the older guys that we had were already living on their own in their own apartment with their wives, girlfriends at the time. Um, but, you know, those guys that I was blessed to, to coach and be around were all hungry, um, self-motivated, driven young men who just didn't have opportunities coming out of high school, but all had the potential and dreams and aspirations to go to a four year to kind of improve their situation, you know, from a um, academic standpoint, just for their families. And I had a great time. I mean, my, my five years at, at Prairie state college were, were some of the best I ever had because I was growing as a coach. I was given a lot of responsibility. I had a chance to coach good kids, really no drama. Um, and then I had an experienced coach who had done it, he, he, he had done it for a long time. He was from Kansas, so he coached Kansas high school ball. He coached college ball, you know, in Kansas. And so he knew what he was doing. Um, and then I only worked for him for one year, the guy that originally hired me. And then I ended up working for a guy by the name of Mike Mandarino, who was a longtime high school coach uh, in Chicago who coached some, you know, big-time players uh, who ended up taking the job. And he kept me on, sight unseen. Didn't know me from Adam, but the agreement with Robert Fairbank, my original boss, and him was, Mike Mandarino, if I give you this job as a head coach, you got to keep Nigel on as an assistant. And it was a no-brainer. He didn't, he didn't interview me uh, and just say, hey, come on, let's go. So my time was great. That's not common at all. Not common at all. And so I was blessed because I was thinking new coach coming in. I'm like, he's going to bring his own person. He didn't know me. Now what was I going to do? And at that point, I just wanted to coach college basketball. I mean, I was teaching at the time, and I love teaching. Um, I love, you know, doing that because I think teaching 
kind of helped me coaching wise, you know, having to explain, you know, things, lesson plans to be organized, to try to get 30 seven-year-olds in a line organizing games, activities in a short amount of time. That takes a lot of <laughs> classroom control, organization, you know, commanding the room, be commanding with your voice. Um, so all that stuff translates. So every situation that I've had, camp, we can talk about camp and our camp experiences. Camp, working camp is being great for me doing that. So, uh, yeah, so back to your original question. I don't think that depicts all junior college situations, um, but I enjoy the show, though. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Hey, so you had the opportunity to serve as an assistant coach, your alma mater. You mentioned then you mm-hmm. became the head coach. Um, what grade would you give yourself as a year, yep, what, 30 years 30 old. at the time, uh-huh. you said? Yep. Okay, so as a 30 year old, yep. first year head coach at Langston, uh, what would you grade? What do you do? Yeah, first time head coach, 30 years old. I'll probably give myself a D. Plus. Um, what, I, what I think I did well was I think I connected well. Um, with my players that I had before. When I mean I had before was one of the main reasons that I was, I think I kind of sold the committee uh, for them to give me the opportunity to get the job was because of the relationships that I had built with the previous team. And because I got the job so late in July, it was kind of tough at that point to go recruit and try to put a roster together. So those guys, that team, before me, so the 2010-2011 team all wrote a petition. Without me knowing, I didn't, I didn't cue that. I didn't hit prompt that. They wrote a petition to the athletic director and says, we want Nigel Thomas to be our head coach. And I think that says a lot, not about me, but about them, that they would have the wherewithal to kind of go, you know, even to an assistant coach who had led them to a 2-25 and record the year before, what what did I do to, to earn their respect enough for me to say I can lead the, their program? And so um, they wrote a petition. They all signed it. They all gave it to the athletic director. The athletic director presented that. You know, I didn't know, but they presented that to the committee during my interview process. And I think that helped. I'm not saying that was the uh, the final straw, but I think it helped. So my relationships with those guys, because I cared about them uh, off the floor. You know, I cared about them as people. I cared about them um, as students. I cared about them. I care about their families. I think that's the only way to do it. So I think my relationship with them was good. Uh, I think my work ethic uh, was good. I put the time in. Um, I tried to build relationships with the community. I tried to put them in situations um, to kind of uh, be in the community, be involved, kind of get the name out there, especially with Langston being in the middle of nowhere. I kind of had to make us visual as a program to kind of start gaining some support uh academically i held them accountable i think that's the main thing they all came there to get degrees and that was my promise to their their parents and their family so uh we had the highest gpa during my three years there than we had in in a while um so what i didn't do well was uh, i didn't manage my staff properly and my and i love my assistant coach gerald vicks um, him and I played together. We were in the backcourt together. He was my, you know, he was a GA when I was the assistant. So when I got the head job, we bumped him up to uh, be an assistant coach. But because I never had any training on how to uh, 
manage, you know, staff and give responsibilities properly. I don't think I put him in the best position to utilize his gifts and his talents. I didn't give him enough um, responsibility because I, I don't think I was clear with my direction. Uh, I think I wanted to try to do everything because I was just so used to doing everything. And so, you know, when you don't utilize people properly, um, it, it kind of takes away from their their energy. And um, and and that's my fault, me being the leader of that program. And I, then I think I overcoached. I think when you're a young coach and when people doubt you anyway to get the job, I think you try to do whatever you can to try to prove that you can coach. And so, you know, I was overcoaching. I think maybe I had about 30 sets that I had in our playbook. And I wanted to call a play every time down. And I kind of made it me trying to control, me trying to show boosters, me trying to show the student body, the administrators that, hey, this young dude knows what he's doing. But then, but I have a bunch of guys who are, could get up and down, who are athletic. And I think when you make guys have to think more, their feet get slower. And so now I'm not utilizing the talents of the players that I have. So if I would have just managed my staff properly, and I think if I didn't try to do so much of overcoaching, and ultimately that has a lot to do about me, and I made it more about me than I, I should have made it more about the players. Okay, so you mentioned that mm-hmm. you got three seasons under your belt. Right. You didn't get the fourth. Do you feel you should have gotten one more year so you had a full um, cycle? No, because that wasn't in God's plans. So I don't think I should have done anything that anything different because it all worked out the way it was supposed to work out. I think uh, when that new athletic director came in, who was Mike Garrett, Mike Garrett was the former athletic director at USC. So he was there doing the uh, whole Reggie Bush uh, Heisman trophy. And so um, he was coming in and he had to prove himself as an athletic director. Um, he was kind of in a no sh- uh, show clause type of period, Division One. So he had to go to an institution where he could go and try to prove to whomever that he was worthy enough to be an athletic director again uh, at that level. So I'm going to go to Langston and I'm going to turn this place around. And so uh, he came in my second year. So he gave me my second year and my third year. Um, but. I, I just wasn't getting the job done at, at the pace in which he felt that we should, you know, we needed to go. And honestly, we, we probably weren't. I mean, each year we got, you know, improved, you know, two or three games, but you know, he was used to being around winners and he wanted to win, but you know, you know, what I've learned in college basketball, what I've learned in college athletics, this is a business and it's about relationships. And so if there wasn't a previous relationship and I tried to do the best I could to kind of, uh, sell myself to him to let him know that I was all about, I was bought into his theories, his philosophies, and into and, and the program and wanted to win. I think at the end of the day, people are going to bring in or hire people that they know and people that they trust and people that they've had previous relationships with and give them opportunities. So at the end of the day, it was fair. He gave me two years. I didn't get the job done. Um, obviously, the timing of it was just, but when is the timing ever right to get fired? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I got fired on April 1st, 2014, the day before I was supposed to head to the Final Four in Dallas. Um, so, you know, Final Four, Final Four for, for any coach, I don't care what level, it's like spring break for coaches. You know, it's your time to hang out, uh, 
you know, you know, be with your fellow peers that you haven't seen, you know, in a while and get a chance. To, but my mission after that, I got fired. I was down there looking for a job. So my thought process and my thinking was totally different. And I had to flip the switch quickly because I had a wife and two kids that I kind of had to, you know, it wasn't about me. <laughs> what was I going to do next for them? Okay, so fast forward a little bit. So mm-hmm. you end up at North Carolina Wesleyan. Um, you guys became a perennial powerhouse mm-hmm. in the USA South Conference. What do you attribute um, the success to? What John Thompson has done with that program over the 25 years that he's been there. And I hate to always say that him and I used to have this discussion all the time because, you know, I don't know if we should ever pitch it like this, but he he ran that program like a Division One program. Now, you know, the argument was there are some Division Three programs that are better than Division One. So why are we making that type of comparison? But from you know from the young man that we tried to recruit, you know they have a they have a uh, impression in their mind about what a high major program looks like. You know, they they see blue bloods on TV. They see the Kansas. They see the Kentucky. They see the Dukes. They see the North Carolina. And they said, oh, man, that's high major basketball. That's what an elite program should look like. But from a from based on the budget that we had and the resource that we had, he treated that program like a high major program. And I'm talking about, um, first of all, the way he would identify and how we would identify potential student athletes uh he had a mantra okg our kind of guy and so we would try to find okgs and an okg for us while i was there and what he taught me were guys that were high character that were going to work hard he wanted gym rats he wanted guys that he could lay his head down at night and not get a phone call from campus security um the rocky mount police department um Anybody where it was going to be any troublemakers. He, 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 he wasn't about that. Um, but he wanted guys who, who loved the game, who wanted to get better. And we didn't have to handhold. And it was just a daily standard that he would put on those guys. And the way we traveled, the hotels that we were staying in, how we would eat, you know, the t- sweats, the shoes, these guys – felt like they were at a high major program. And I think when you get that type of buy-in, you get major production out of your players. And so just the standard, how he treated the guys, the communication that he had with families, um, with parents, with the recruits, he had an open door policy. So there was never a time that even when he was an athletic director, when he had all these other sports, all these other coaches who came in with problems, gripes, he would always put that project down if one of players came through the door and so you know I think that says a lot that let those kids knew that he cared about them and so now you're going to run through the wall for a guy that cares about you beyond those four lines that we play on and um, you know just what he tried to do for them he would fight for them fight for more money for them for our budget the fundraising that he would do you know he would pour into the so he would pour in his blood sweat and tears and I think that translates to winning and he's done it. He's done it when he's been by himself as a, as a head coach. There was a year where he kind of, you know, he didn't have an assistant. And he's done it with a staff with, you know, one full-time assistant and two volunteers. So um, just getting everybody to buy in. 
and it was called the Wesleyan way. That was kind of the hashtag, the Wesleyan way. And the Wesleyan way was just do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it and do it to the best of your ability. And that was kind of the day-to-day standard by which he, he ran his program. Well, you guys definitely played the best of your ability in 2018. Mm-hmm. I don't matter how point. Did you guys? Yep. And welcome to overtime. Take me through pregame, halftime, and right before overtime. Yeah. Those discussions, yeah. coach to coach, coach to yeah. Players, so, like, um, going that. into it, obviously, any high major game uh, that you play, and you know, so we played. You know, for the five years I was there, you know, playing high point. What twice while I was there, uh, um, played UNCW, uh, just any of those high major games, your players are going to get amped up for because they're going to get amped up because they're playing on the big floor, they're playing against the big boys, and they're playing against guys at a level in which they all aspire to do when they were in high school. I think every guy going into college has aspirations to play Division One basketball, and that was their time to prove themselves. And um, going into that game, uh, I, I knew they were loaded on the perimeter. I mean, that was my scout and uh, had some heck of a players, especially, you know, guards that were just bigger than our guards. So that was going to be a problem. Um, they were just more athletic, uh, I thought, just on paper. Uh, but I knew that talking to coach that if we control tempo, um, if we didn't get into an up and down game uh, with High Point, and, and you know so much respect to Smith and the job that he's done over the course of his his career, so tremendous respect. So I was in awe when we first even walked into the building. Um, but uh, I just think our game plan was we need to control the tempo of the game. We couldn't make this up and down. We couldn't turn it over. We had to you know really hold them to one shot. We kind of had to rebound and not give them second chance opportunities. And then on the other end, we had to execute offensively. And that was kind of our pitch to the guys going in. And our guys were just jacked up. They were hyped. They were amped up to play that game. And, um, and I'm just trying to think blow by blow. I've never been one that could remember possessions by possessions of the game. I want to get better at that over the course of my career. But I knew at halftime uh, we had a chance. Now, the thing about it, when you play those games, obviously when you're playing against a Division One opponent, the deck is stacked against you because of officials, because of the crowd, because high point is paying us to come play. So nobody wants to lose the money game. You're not going to lose the money game to a team that you're playing for. And nobody wants to lose to a division three program. But as that game is coming down the stretch, I knew we kind of had a chance because I could see it in our eyes. Um, AJ. I, I knew it. I, I knew half second half uh, when it was kind of going back and forth. You know, in a boxing match, you just kind of go blow for blow, and I can see it in the eyes of their guys. Mm-hmm. And it was looking like, man, we're we're really in a dog fight. And I could just see by the body language they weren't amped up as they were early on. Um, but I just saw it in the eyes of our guys. And AJ Fry, uh, big fella, you talk about, yeah. That kid, yeah, a beast. he's a beast, but even Good. a better kid. AJ Fry is probably one of the best kids I've ever coached. Um, probably undersized, probably you know not athletic enough to play the Division One level, but what he did with his ability um, to be successful, uh, he was just in a place mentally where he says, "I'm going to take over," 
and he made some plays down the stretch. Ricardo Bullock, 6'10", kid from Creedmoor, tall, lanky, but he hit a top of the key three <laughs> late in the second half um, that I knew our bench was fired up. And then our crowd was in it. We had our fans behind us. And that's all we needed at that point. And coach believed it at that point that we just needed to control the tempo going down the stretch. Um, but there was a possession where, you know, we turned it over. Uh, we turned it over late, and which was one of the, you know, the things that we could not do. And they capitalized and, you know, sent it to overtime. So going into overtime, I think our momentum uh, kind of drained a little bit because we kind of felt like we gave it up. You understand what I'm saying? So I don't think we had the same uh, energy that we had going into the second half. I, I just don't think the belief was there like we had at the end of the game just because we had two crucial turnovers back-to-back -back in the second half that led to them uh, leading us to overtime. And I just think at that point they believed that they had us on the ropes and, and they won it. But you talk about a dogfight. And I think at that point right there, our team gained so much confidence going through the rest of the year. Uh, if we could compete against High Point, a Division One program, um, Big South, you know, well-respected conference, well-respected Hall of Fame coach, if we could do that against them and we felt like we got their best shot, why couldn't we compete against anybody in the USA South? I just think that was so good for us. I think that, you know, earned the respect of, um, you know, a lot of people in our league. Our guys needed that for confidence. It helped with recruiting. Uh, that was a big thing. But most importantly, our guys uh, enjoyed the experience. So, man, that's something I'll never forget. So that makes me want to go back and watch that because I haven't watched that in a while. Oh, I've watched oh, that a few goodness. times. Yeah. And, uh, I have the barf bag big, right You're now. a big high point guy, so I know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, big high point guy. Worst in the world. Um, so you guys ended up having a Yeah, we did. Um, year, right? We did in a regular level. season. Now, you know, conference tournament played a uh, different story. Yep. Okay, so – I remember my last year at Catholic, we played George Washington University yep. exhibition game, I believe for both. Um, and, and the reason I asked, you know, hey, mm -hmm. walk me through going into the game, halftime. Going into the game, okay, let's try to be competitive. Let's make it a game. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. give ourselves a fighter's chance at yep. halftime. And let's see where it goes. So, we're mm -hmm. expect, you know, to empty the bench in the second half. Right, it's, it's like a five-point game or something like that, and so coaches are walking down. Yeah, the line right, right. Go, yeah, we got a chance yeah. to win this son of a bitch. <laughs> and this, so, you know, you're thinking, right? You know, you, yes, you want to win the game. You always want to win the game, but you're like, hey, you know, when should we start emptying the bench? Hey, let's, you know, yep. <laughs> you know, right. senior, you know, kind of a, a swan song, and you know, curtain. Right. So it's like you're, you're you're trying to script that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think, race. you know, okay, and that was kind of our our mindset going in as a sap. I mean, we thought we had a chance. And, and honestly, going in, you know, you always have a belief and you always want to compete at the highest level. But you know when the, when this deck is, the deck is stacked against you and you know, hey, top to bottom, they're just going to be better than us and they're probably just going to kick our ass. But um, – and we believe that. And I think our experience as a coaching staff when we played there before, and the last time we played there was Big John Brown, and they just they, – they killed us. And so we're thinking that same type of, you know, atmosphere, and we cleared the bench that game. John Brown just took over uh, against us when we played high, high point before. 
That man, oh man, oh man, walking bucket. I knew that kid walking was a bucket, pro. Walking uh, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I saw him doing warmups, and I knew he was a pro because that was my scout as well. But just seeing him up close, I was like, oh, that kid's on a different level. And and I knew, and I, you always know you have fear from your team no when your team is watching the other team warm up. You know, that's always yeah, that's always been a thing of mine. Like if your team is oh, yeah. watching another team warm up, they're scared, and that's kind of how. Uh, our guys were during the time. Not to say they're, they're, you know, they're scared kids, but you know, when you just see a, a specimen like that and a guy of that type of athletic ability doing things that he was doing during warmups, uh, it kind of makes you and you kind of in awe. And so, I just think this time around, our guys weren't in awe. They embraced, they embraced the opportunity. They embraced the atmosphere. They embraced. You know, we had going in and then, you know, just to have and, and we had an older group. I mean, we had an older group of guys who uh, on our roster, you know, you're talking about we had five seniors. And so and th- out of those five seniors, four of them really started or got high, you know, high playing time. And the last time we were in there, they were freshmen. And so I think they wanted redemption. They wanted to, you know, come into what is it called? Mills convocation. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So coming into there, I just Miller's think the last time that they were in there, yep. they were like, okay, we're not going to let that happen again. And they were just amped up. And so I think when you have that type of confidence going in, you know, at least you give yourself a fighter chance. Okay, so mm-hmm. later in the 2018-2019 yeah. season, you know, I said that we were going to bring this one up. So you guys, you guys came up to D.C., played yep. the Catholic University's Christmas tournament. I, I was, I was scouting you guys. I had watched you. I had watched the mm-hmm. game, like I said, too many times. But I'd, I'd watch other games, and mm-hmm. we get, you know, we make the bracket. So we put you guys against Babson because Babson had right. won the national championship yep. a few years before. They were low. Uh, mm-hmm. Danny Ainge's kid ended up going there the whole year, but we scheduled yeah. Medal. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Medal. Right. I don't even yeah. School. Right. And no disrespect yeah, yeah, to them, yeah. but I couldn't even pronounce it. That's that's a not. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. we, yeah. So we lose sixty six to sixty two, and I'm pissed. I'm like, man, you got to be kidding me. Our coach is pissed. First time in school history that we yeah. didn't, win, you know, make it to the championship game of our own tournament. And I stick around. I was yeah. like, right. you know, I'm at least gonna, you know, go over it. Right. Like, What's up? Dap you up. And I'm gonna stick around for at least the first half. And because. I I had scouted you guys, uh, and I think. Okay, can you hear me? Yep. Happened, man. I apologize. No, I th- I think it was because we were going so long. But uh, hey, let's okay. just keep right going. Okay, so where were we when that? Uh, so we I was watching you guys. You watching this? Yep. Yep, watching you guys play Babson. Right. And it's funny you said you know sweat with your guys in warmups. Mm-hmm. You were getting after it. I mean, you could tell you were locked in. Your players were taking your lead. I give your coach a whole lot of credit that, you know, he kind of let you just run with that. Like, okay, Nigel's going to be kind of running certain parts of warm-ups, and he just, you know, he let you own that. Yeah. Um, and so, and I had heard great things about him before that. Yeah. Um, so you guys go beat Babson. I leave after the first half. I'm like, man, F this. Like, <laughs> I'm so pissed that we just lost. Yeah, yeah. I don't even casino afterwards it was like 10 miles away like I was, I was so mad i just went home yeah you know followed the box score yeah um but then obviously followed your success you know after that right um what was it like coaching at the non-scholarship level after being at a juco and nai level um 
and I'm just being as honest and <laughs> as transparent as possible. I knew nothing about Division Three other than they tried to, you know, offer me an opportunity out of high school. Um, but I think that, you know, the mindset of young men, and I, and I hate to say it, you know, well, I am going to say it because I don't, so I don't want to say I hate to say it, but I think the mindset of young men, if they don't see NCAA Division One on a media guide or just on a website, or even the fact of not seeing NCAA on the floor, period, on a basketball floor when you go to play, I think kind of turns them off. And there's a lack of respect for that level. And I didn't know anything about NAIA when I went there. I didn't know, I had never heard of NAIA, so I had no clue. And I just don't think that you understand the level that there are players on every level that can play. And I don't think there's any difference. Obviously, there's some athletic differences and, you know, size differences from, from level. But there are players at every level. So, you know, going into situations where, you know, um, you know, JUCO, we had a certain pot for, for scholarships. When I got the NAIA, we had five and a half scholarships to kind of, you know, play around with, to kind of piece together uh, for, for guys and, you know, out-of-state tuition and, you know, with Pell Grant, you know, getting that stuff back. So piecing that stuff together. And then coming to Division Three, which I had never seen at that point, I had never seen Division Three basketball. I never knew what it looked like, what, what an atmosphere was like. Uh, at that point, I was just looking for a job. <laughs> and I was just looking for any opportunity to stay relevant, to stay in the game, to stay have the ability to coach. And um, But when I tell you how I think this says a lot about programs, and this is for any coach out there. I think it says a lot about your program and the culture that you've established there when you have former players that come back and see you beyond their time of playing. And I think that when players come back to see their coach five years, ten years, um, after they've been married and they bring their family back, if they send you baby announcements, if they say, hey, coach, uh, just wanted to say congratulations on the last win. Here's a card. Uh, hey, coach, I'm coming through the area. I just want to stop by, say hello, spend a couple of you know, times with you. Hey, coach, I see that you guys are going to be in town playing. Can, I, can you put me on the pass list? Um, that right there showed me, especially when I was at Wesleyan, what a program should look like. Um, so what I didn't know and what I didn't have an understanding of when I first took the job was – how are we going to recruit at this level when we can't offer any athletic scholarships? And what I learned quickly was uh, the way you treat players uh, during the recruiting process, how you kind of embrace them. I think that parents will make situations work to put their child in the best situation possible. And, I, and it could be a full scholarship situation, no scholarship situation, a situation where they got to take out multiple loans. I think when you can just really dive in, build a relationship uh, with players, families, when you're recruiting to kind of sell uh, the atmosphere, sell the program, sell the fact about where players are doing now post-graduation, I learned that quickly. And the, the, the culture that Coach Thompson had built there spoke for itself. So in all honesty, it, 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 you know, there were some tough recruiting battles because, I mean, at the end of the day, 
you know, sometimes money just talks. <laughs> and so when you, you know, when you're going up against a kid who, yeah, you could have a relationship with a kid, but if a division two comes in and says that we're going to give you a full ride and we're paying for everything, sometimes it's just kind of tough to turn down. But we've been in, in the battle with some kids who, against some division twos, uh, where they said, you know, forget the, <laughs> forget the full ride. We'll come to you and we'll just figure it out uh, financially. And that just says a lot about, you know, how you treat guys, how you make them feel, what, what type of presentation can you give them? So I didn't know anything about division three, but now five years, six years later, so much respect for the division three level, because now you're dealing with kids who are actually playing for the love of the game. Like they have no ties to any program at any time. These kids can walk in your office and say, I'm done playing. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not binded to any letter of intent, no scholarship agreement. Um, there's nothing that says, hey, you know, if I leave, if I stop playing, then I'm not going to get my school paid for. So you're dealing with people who and dealing with young men who are playing because they really love the game. And so I think that just says a lot about this level. And, and, and this level is so many good players. It's, it's so many players at this level, Division three, who could probably play Division two and possibly playing some low to mid-major Division one. Oh, no doubt. So a lot of coaches get labeled as, you know, the levels they're at. So do you consider yourself a JUCO guy, a D3 guy, an NAIA guy? Or what kind of label do you give yourself? Or do you not label yourself? I don't label myself at all. I just I label myself as a coach and as a mentor of young men. Uh, I think I think that was kind of, you know, I think that's when you start getting to the to – chasing the job aspect, which I did early on in my career. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. Um, there was a stretch in my career, probably when I was at Langston, when I was, you know, reaching out to division one programs, just looking for uh, an opportunity. If it was a GA spot, it was a ops position. Um, and I probably put more time into that, trying to build the relationship the wrong way um, and not spending enough time, you know, I did my job, but I probably could have been more invested in doing it and just doing the best job I can at the job I had. And so I never want to label myself as a as a coach. And honestly, you know, people, um, you know, when I was at Wesleyan and I was had some opportunities to leave Wesleyan during my time there, um, they were like, Nigel, if you go back to an HBCU, probably going to be just labeled an HBCU coach. Like, that's, that's the only job you're going to get. And I'm thinking like, well, wow, I mean... I hope nobody would just put me in a box like that. I mean, I know I played there and I know I coached there for six years, but I just, I want to coach and, and I can coach. I think I can coach in any situation, uh, at any level. Um, obviously there are adjustments to different levels. There are adjustments to every program, but at the end of the day, if you can get guys better and if you know what you're talking about um, and you have the ability to learn, the ability, ability to adapt, um, and just love on your kids, help them improve, and help them get degrees. I don't think it matters what what level you're at. Now, honest, obviously, there's more um, pressure to win at the level I'm at now, just because of the standard in which you know you know job security is really something that fluctuates a lot at this level. Division three, you probably see more constant. You know, JUCO level, you probably see more constant. You don't see a lot of. Uh, coaching carousel at the JUCO level. You probably don't see it a lot at the NAIA level. When you start getting up to where more money is involved, then obviously the pressure to win is greater. Um, so, you know, 
But I think when you just do the best job you can, the job you have, and just put your head down, really dive into these kids, really just do the best job you can for your boss. Uh, your main job as an assistant is to make your, your boss's job easier. And it's not about us. It's not about me as an assistant. It's not about, you know, my current situation. It's about Lavelle Moulton and North Carolina Central University. I mean, that's that's what it is. And how can we make his job easier because he's pulled in so many different directions? How can we get our kids better? How do we can we get our kids prepared to play night in and night out, be prepared to compete day in and day out? How can we keep them on course to, to get to class? You know, we may be getting off a flight and getting home at, at, you know, a bus ride back to Durham at two o'clock in the morning. Some of those guys got eight o'clock classes. No excuses. You need to be there. So there's a there's a standard. So um, I don't think any level I don't want to be labeled at any level. I don't want to be boxed in at any level. I want to be just Nigel Thomas, the coach, the husband, the father uh, and the man of God. I love it. And I love how that answer kind of segues into my next question. So anyone who follows you on Instagram knows how much you love your family, how many hours you put in watching film and scouting. How are you able to have such a strong work-life balance? Um, it, it's been an evolution, DK, honestly. Um, my wife and I have known each other since we were 10 years old. So when I first moved out to the suburbs, when I moved out to Chicago, to the suburbs with my mother, um, like I said before, you kind of build relationships with guys just by playing ball. And so my wife's brother was my best friend growing up. We met each other in junior high and, you know, I stayed on one side of, of town. They stayed on the other and he had a basketball hoop in his driveway. And I used to go over his house and we would play one-on-one -on -one in the garage and he has a little sister. So my wife is one year younger than me, but you know, she was the younger sister of my of my now brother-in-law and my best friend then Barry, and it was Carrie. But I didn't I didn't know her. I wasn't looking at Carrie like that back then. I wasn't looking at her as somebody I wanted to date because all I was in, I was into hooping. I was into to playing ball. But obviously, as you know, as you get older, your hormones get <laughs> greater. Uh, <laughs> women start to develop, and you start to have more interest. And so there was an interest <laughs> later on. But um, my wife is the superstar of our household. You know, she has known me since I was 10. So she's always known my drive, my aspirations, my goals, always known that I want to coach. And I think anybody, any coach in this business, if they want to survive in this business, they got to have a partner who supports them and is able to sacrifice and able to take on so much. Because at the end of the day, coaches and DK you know this we as coaches spend more time with our players than we do with our own family and so um you know when I first started at Langston when I was an assistant I worked for a head coach who you know he taught me work ethic I mean that's just what it was and I guess I needed that at the time because at JUCO you kind of just get to go and come as you please and there's no really set hours but you know JUCO I mean at NAI he would be in the office at 8 a.m sometimes 7.30, I had to beat him to the office. And then he couldn't leave, or he wouldn't leave until like 9 or 10 at night, and I couldn't leave until he after he left. So you're talking about a tough time for us as a family, and we just had a newborn. She's a new mom. I'm a new dad. But I, I was leaving the, the house early in the morning and not coming home to late, and there was no stretch in between just because I thought I had to be married to the office to prove to him that 
I wanted to work and I wanted to work at this level. Um, that was a tough time on us. And I then, you know, and not to say that situation was bad. I'm not saying that because it's all part of your growth. Then when I get to Wesleyan, it's more of a family atmosphere. Coach T preaches family. So my wife, my kids will come to the office, come to the gym, come to practice. So I think if you can integrate your family and kind of have them involved as much as possible so they can see what you're doing. You know, you know, my wife is, you know, has a relation. My kids have a relationship with the players. They know all the, the players by their name and stuff like that. And you, know, you have them involved. I think that just helps with the balance. And there are going to be times that I'm going to miss things. I'm going to miss events. I'm going to miss spelling bees. I'm going to miss, you know, dental appointments, doctor's appointments, uh, ballet recitals, monumental moments in their life. But I have a co-captain or a captain or an assistant coach or head coach, however you want to, whatever title that you want to put on her for this household that just allows me to coach and allows me to do my job. And she does it with no complaints. And so I just think that you got to find somebody who's going to support you and your dream and your aspirations and allow you to do it. And that, and now, you know, with coach Moten, he's all about family. He doesn't want us missing things with our, with our kids. Like if we need to go be somewhere with our kids, you know, the, the office is going to be there. Work is going to be there. We already missed so much during the year. So, you know, now I think with COVID, this has been so tremendous for any coach um, because I've spent more time here in the last five weeks at home than I probably spent at home in the last five years combined. And I just think it's great. Now, are they going to get spoiled by the time it's time to go back to reality? Probably so. But I just think this is a great time right now. Okay. So you, you married relatively young. Like you said, you've known your wife since mm -hmm. you were 10. The divorce rate among coaches mm -hmm. is high. What advice would you have for young coaches and what sacrifices have, and you kind of answered this, but have both you and your wife both made in order to make this marriage work? Friendship. Friendship. Friendship, communication, I think is so key. I, I just think that if you can have honest communication with your spouse about, you know, what you're doing, you know, at least they have a, a, a game plan. At least they have in their mind about what's going to transpire. And our season, you know, now that she's been through it now, because now we've, you know, as a married couple, we've been through now since we've been together. She's been in with me now 12 to 13 seasons now. So she's kind of used to it. And each situation is different. But open communication, I think that, you know, if you can give them a schedule, if there's a schedule that you can give them, if you can sit down and plan out and say, hey, and there's always going to be things that pop up. But if you got to go recruiting one night and there's been plenty of recruiting trips that she's gone with me, um, that's what I'm saying. You've got to kind of in Love, I love when when coaches' spouses oh, yeah. will do that. I think that's so underutilized as far as, you know, coaches go, oh, you know, I never get to spend time at home with my wife. Take her on the yeah. rec recruiting it's trip. It's been so many times. You know how many recruiting trips that my wife and kids have been to. And I think, you know, that's always a good pitch. And it was a good pitch for me early on when you go back talking about how young I look. I think, you know, when you go and bring your family into a gym and you're trying to sell – a um a recruit and their parents and they see you with your family they they like that <laughs> you know mothers really like that they like to see you know a, a young man with an established family who basically is going to be mentoring their son they want to see that they you know and having your spouse involved in that and that's a lot of sacrifice on, on my wife's end because if we're going on a recruiting trip and let's say you know we were in rocky mountain and we went to go see aj fry probably about three or four times 
Well, from Rocky Mount to um, to Wilmington was two and a half hours. And you're talking about he had a seven o'clock game. And then I would stick around to talk to AJ and his mom and his sisters after the game. You know, we wouldn't get out the gym until, what, 930. And then now a two and a half hour drive back home to Rocky Mount and the kids got to get up for school. But I just think that, you know, those couple of hours in the car together is so valuable. So if you can do things like that, if you, you know, allow the, you know, your family to come to the office and spend some time. Um, but I just think that open communication, having a friendship and spending whatever downtime, you know, and people ask me all the time, Nigel, what, what kind of hobbies do you have? I don't have any hobbies. So I'm not one of those coaches that say, oh, man, I like to go golf. You know, I, mean, I you know, my, my, my downtime, if it's not basketball related, I'm with my family. So somebody can say that's unhealthy. I, I don't think so. It's been his work for me. Um, but I, I'm a basketball guy. That's all I watch. That's all I read. And when I'm not doing that, I'm with my wife and my kids. And so I think that's kind of, you know, and, and, and is it tough? Yeah. You know, does she get frustrated at times because everything kind of falls on her and I'm gone for four and five days? Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, when they feel appreciated um, and I think they're fully invested in the season, just like we are. So when we won the MEAC championship against A&T, she was in tears just like I was in tears. You know what I mean? Because they're invested in it. They're around the guys. They see the growth. They see the hard work. They see the 6 a.m. practices. They see the recruiting trip. They see how much you got to stay up all night and do scouting reports, get ready for film, you know. And so, you know, when they see that, they see the work you put in, and but then they get to see the rewards of success at the end. That just makes it so much greater. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. So what's it like being the only male in your house? <laughs> What do you think it means to be a quote unquote girl dad? I love it. Um, I love it from the fact that um, I think because I was raised around mainly all women. So I was kind of used to it. I was used to just the personalities of women and the hormones and the attitudes of of women. Um, I think that if I had a son, I would feel some type of way, especially if he did not play basketball. And I'm not knocking any any coach with uh, who have sons because, you know, Coach Thompson has three boys himself. So um, and he had a son that, that, that played ball. He's really invested in, in ball. And he had other two sons who played soccer. But I just feel like, man, how would it be if I had a son who didn't like the game, but I'm spending all my time with these other young men? How would he feel? Um, but I, my girls, my girls are my biggest cheerleaders. And that's one thing about kids. No matter what type of day you have, I don't care if we just lost to whoever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We come home from a loss. They don't care. They don't care. They love you no matter what. They, they're going to hug on you. They're going to cuddle. You know, my girls are affectionate, so they're always crawling on me. Um, I love to hug them. I love to kiss them. Uh, obviously, this the Kobe Bryant situation has really humbled me. Um with the with the situation because at any moment circumstances can change and i just think we have to just really cherish the relationships that we have while we have them and especially because we're as coaches we're gone so much and we miss so much time is going to fly i mean i remember when my oldest was first born now she's 11 years old heading to sixth grade time is going to fly next thing you know she's going to be in high school next thing you know she's going to be in college so i, I enjoy it um, they love being around the game. I don't force any of them to play the ball. 
they like the game, but I don't, I'm never going to force them to say they have to play basketball. I mean, I love them all. They're all different. Uh, they're all in the same roof, uh, but they all have different personalities. They all have different needs. And I think as a parent, a parent has made me a better coach. And I think a coach has made me a better parent, I believe, um, because you have to. That's yeah. thicker somewhere. I'm telling you, that, that's got. Yeah, I just think from patience, just think from uh, managing personalities, I think it helps. It helps with how you communicate. And I'm just thinking, like, I want to be a coach where what I don't I guess what what my what my kids want to play for me if they did play, you know, would they would they want to play for me if they did play any sports? So how I communicate them, how I treat them, we all deal, deal with other people's children. And so I'm going to treat these young men the same way I treat my girls. Yeah. Do I hold them to a high standard? Yes. Do I call them out? Yes. Do they teach me just as much as I teach them? Yes. Is there open communication? Yes. Will I ever demean them? No. Will I ever down talk them or make them feel less than what they are? No. And so I just think because I have that outlet and have the ability, and especially with females, because I think you got to be even more patient. You have to be a better listener. Um, I believe um, because of the emotions, um, I think it's made me listen better as a coach and made me listen uh, during the recruiting process and really listen to what guys want and what they need, what they're looking for in a program. Um, so it's helped. It's going, it's gone hand in hand. So I love it. Okay. Um, what's your craziest recruiting story? And this can be oh, wow. at any level over the Every everybody's got at least yeah. like ten. So let, let's hear. Okay. Let's hear um, one of your best. I was at I was at Langston, and I was probably in my second year, and we were recruiting. <laughs> so this was, wow. So this was two thousand nine, two thousand and ten season. So I was an assistant coach, and you know, and, and once again, my head coach Greg Webb. So much respect for him because, and let me just go back. The first day I arrived on campus to work for him, so I, I made the drive from uh, Richmond Park, Illinois, to Langston, Oklahoma. So I interviewed late July. He said, Nigel, I said, Coach, how quickly do you need me back here, you know, once I accepted the job? Well, I, he said, I need you back here in six days. So I was living in an apartment in Chicago, uh, had to pack up my apartment, sold my furniture. I had a 1995 Toyota Camry. And I had to pack all my belongings up into that Camry and get back down there six days after I accepted the job. And I made the 12-hour drive. I remember I left about 1 a.m. Um, like on a Monday. And so by the time I was going to get to Oklahoma, it was kind of probably going to be about 3 or 4 in the afternoon. So I make the drive. I get to Langston. I'm living in uh, faculty housing, so it's already furnished, you know, so it already has washer, dryer, couch, all that. So I just throw my stuff down on the bed, put on some sweats, and I head over to the office. Well, as soon as I walk in, imagine now I'm coming off a 12-hour drive. I'm, I'm putting my stuff down. I'm ready to work. I'm here. As soon as I get into the office, I say, Coach, I'm here. And the first thing he says is, who are you? So I'm, look, I'm looking like, What? <laughs> Who am I? I said, come on, coach, quit playing, man. What, what, how you doing? What you need me to do? Where, you know, what, what's my first assignment? He said, you don't have an assignment. He said, your first assignment is to go home and change. I said, 
I, and I'm looking like, what's wrong with I had, you know, a basketball coach, at, you know, at this point, I'm used to just being in sweats every day. Um, he says, when we're here in the office, how we work, we, we're in slacks and a shirt all the time. When you're in wow. the gym, you can be in wow. sweats. But anytime we're in the office and we're doing office work, we're in slacks, shirt, hard bottom shoes. Wow. Wow. This is what I got myself into. huh? So hurry back over to the, you know, back to the apartment. You know, all my stuff was in the bag. So I kind of had to iron a, a button down shirt, came back over there, slacks, hard bottoms. And for those next three years, anytime I was in the office, slacks, shirt, hard bottom shoes, if I had individual workouts, go down to the locker room, change as soon as the workout was over, back to shirt, slacks, hard bottom shoes. And so that was kind of how he was trying to groom me for the business. He was trying to groom me to be professional at all times. So fast forward to the story. So it was one day uh, we were recruiting a kid in San Antonio and the kid had already committed. And, you know, the NAI rules, we're allowed to go. And we're allowed to go to the signing of, of the kid. The kid signed his, his letter of intent. So he wanted me to drive from Langston, Oklahoma to San Antonio, Texas, go there just to take the paper to sign. And we were going to have him take a picture with the jersey and then drive back and be ready for 6 a.m. practice the next day. So I go, hop in the, you know, the rental car that we had on campus, Took my wife, took our daughter, drove to San Antonio, Texas, which was an eight-hour drive. Um, gave the young man his uniform, his letter of intent. He signed it. You're talking about a five-minute interaction, you know, because his family already had dinner set up for him. But I had to get back. I had to get ready for practice. We had a game two days later, and I had to scout and made the drive back. And so you're talking about a 16-hour turnaround to be up for a 6 a.m. practice. Um I had never done anything like that before. But once again, this guy was just grooming me for the grind, if you want to call it a grind, because I just believe that when you, you do something you love, it's not really a grind. Because, yeah. Just, no, it's just labor it love. So I did that. And there were so many times when I had to go drive and pick up um, transcripts for kids. And I'm talking about a junior, junior college is three hours away, where official transcripts couldn't be mailed you had to go pick them up hard copy from the registrar's office. And it was like during the time when, you know, the school was closed Christmas. So the mail was not going to, it was going to overlap. So we needed the transcripts. So I've made a lot of trips like that. Uh, but I just think that the drive to San Antonio for a kid that had committed and we just needed him to sign a letter of intent and give a Jersey for a photo op was probably the craziest thing I've done since I've been a coach. Now, was he you a know what? He lasted there? about, um, Three weeks on campus, got into some trouble, and then we let him go. Yeah. But let me give wow. you another one. And, I, and, and, you know, the other one is um, <laughs> the other one is, is an A.J. Fry story. So, you know, recruited A.J. out of high school, Hagrid High School in Wilmington. Um, and we were just not going to lose this kid to whoever. We just felt that we needed him. We needed uh, a player like him. Um we just thought that if we can get him into some type of shape. He was going to be a dominant force for us. I remember going to see AJ at a local church. Uh, he, the, the church had like a, a, a 40 foot court in the back of their little rec center. And I just went to go watch AJ play in a little pickup game against some 
older ministers and a priest. It, it, it was crazy. But um, making that drive just to go see him playing a little pickup game, he said that was the selling point for him to commit. I don't know if it is or isn't. You have to ask AJ that. But he said if a coach is willing to come see me play at a, at a pickup game at a, at a local church, you guys must really want me. And he ended up committing a week later. So um, I just think that little sacrifices like that, man, you know, they pay off. Um, and my main thing is when you're recruiting a kid, I think the, the same love that you show them during the process is the same type of love you need to show them when they, when you get them on campus. So recruiting guys just as hard as you do during the process, you got to recruit them even harder when you have them on your campus. So there's no way you can just have a kid commit, sign, and say, all right, that's it. We got them now. You know, no, you got to work on that relationship daily. And why stop showing him love now just because uh, you think the work is done? So. That's so true. Um, so I know you can't, and, and I'm, I'm, this is, this is the one question I thought about texting you. I had it, I typed mm -hmm. it out and I'm like, nah, you know what? I'm going to ask him. He was to no comment. I, yep. That's up to him. I know you can't. Comment on yep. scholarship offers and verbal commitments, but mm -hmm. Central has reportedly offered a scholarship to the son of mm -hmm. a three-time NBA champion. What do you think North Carolina Central can offer in comparison to quote-unquote high major Division One? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just from from a compliance stuff. standpoint, obviously, I can't talk about any individual kid. But what can North Carolina Central? North Carolina Central sells itself because of the job that LaBelle Moulton has done since he's been there. You know, you're talking about a guy that, you know, has done it. Uh, he became a head coach in 2009, and um, look what he's done since he's been there. I mean, either a conference tournament championship or a uh, championship, two NCAA appearances. Um, I just think – and guys are playing – making money there are several players who are making money now why not why not central you we're going to play the highest level of competition uh, we're playing in a in a city in the rdu triangle area so you know we're right around you know state duke unc uh we don't run from any competition from a non-conference schedule and then we're going to compete every year uh and MIAC play to try to fight for uh ncaa tournament appearance and um I just think that's just for any any kid. So why why not? <laughs> why not Central? Why not go to a winner? Why not uh, have the opportunity if you want to come and, and compete daily and be held to a high standard? I think uh, Coach Moulton's mantra has been the standard is the standard. And, you know, I think he preaches that daily. The standard is the standard. Like, he's not going to drop his for anybody, uh, for any one person, because the culture has built itself and – and it's been successful. So the recipe for success, if you want to work day in and day out, if you want to be held accountable daily, um, if you want to work and if you, know, if you want to be called out for, uh, you know, mistakes, but be praised for when you do well, um, why not here? <laughs> why not Central? I love it. And, and the one game I went to go see you guys play, I think it was USC Upstate, great environment, especially for a non-conference game. You know, in you know before conference play, because mm -hmm. I know a few conferences you, you sprinkle in a few. Yeah, like it was a good environment. It was a good win. 
that mm-hmm. guy, you know, your head coach coached him up. And, you know, he, he was he was yelling yeah. at guys, but he was the first one to pat him on the butt and give him a hug after yep. that game and after they did something well. So, you know, and just watching from afar over the years, he, he is. seems I mean, like just, a tremendous coach. Um, you know, and it just – it gives me a greater respect for head coaches and, you know, people ask me, you know, Nigel, you know, do you have aspirations to be a head coach again? I mean, I think everybody has aspirations to be a head coach again, but, you know, to see what head coaches have to deal with on a daily basis, um, the battles they have to fight. Um, and I hate to say battles cause I don't want to make it all negative, but just the responsibilities that they have, um, 85% of those battles or those responsibilities they have are non-basketball related. And the other 15% is probably basketball related. I, and I could probably go as high as 90 to say it's non-basketball stuff. When you're dealing with so many, when you're dealing with boosters and when you're dealing with administrators, when you're just dealing with, um, you know, you're trying to promote your program, you try to fundraise, you're trying to, you know, get money for your program and you're trying to manage personalities. And I think that's what he does. He does a tremendous job of giving guys ownership for particular parts in the program. And and when you hire people that you can trust, that you know they're going to get the job done, you don't have to oversee it as much. You don't have to do a lot of, you know, standing over people's shoulders and micromanaging because you know people are going to get the job done. And and I think that was my case coming in. I mean, getting the job late and the success that they had, I didn't want to be the one to come and mess it up. You don't know how many <laughs> Oh, I know that. That's man. almost more pressure than being the head coach. You're like, man, right? It's been good. And you don't know how many days, there. how many nights Jeez. I went to sleep just hoping, <laughs> like, man, I hope we can just get this done because I don't want to be that guy who, on the staff, we just we came in, we made a change on the staff, and and that's what everybody's gonna look at. Come on, let's be let's be real about it. what change was made between this year and last year. And why you weren't as successful? You, know, you start looking at the staff. You can look at players. You look at the staff. He just didn't get the job done. So, um, but that just lets you know that there's a standard every day. There's a standard. Uh, there's a pressure, but I think it's good pressure because that's what sports is. Sports is competing, um, and so we compete every day. We're trying to compete to be the best program possible every day, and we're competing and we're fighting for our culture every day we're you know we're competing for our guys competing for the love of our um of our program of our the love and respect from uh, the community um and just making sure that these guys stay on course and so they can compete in the classroom compete in the community and compete on the floor that's great stuff so with the COVID 19 uh and coronavirus <laughs> pandemic MEAC schools already obviously need to schedule a large number of buy games. You know, anyone listening to this right. uh, understands basketball. They know what a buy game is. With the pandemic mm-hmm. and the loss of the NCAA revenue, how do you think this is going to impact North Carolina Central 2021 or 21-22 schedule? I know you guys already have a hard enough time scheduling because, yeah. and I'll say it for you, yeah. teams duck and bump. They know that chance that you're right. going to go and beat them in a bye game so they won't skip oh yeah. we already have a game that day whatever but how do you think that's um, going to impact your schedule you know we just had a staff meeting earlier and, and that was one of the topics of discussion and you know lucky thing for us we only have one more game to schedule uh so you know getting scheduling done early on kind of helped us and yeah it's it's a challenge and i didn't know how much of a challenge it was before but i think as a head coach what i learned i think scheduling is just if not harder, 
than is recruiting. I think those are the two toughest things to do, you know, when you run a program. Scheduling and recruiting are the two toughest things. So um, you're talking about budget cuts. I don't know how many, and obviously, you know, we had a probably a high major game, so we can generate some revenue. But how many how many high major teams out there are going to be willing to pay or who are going to be able to pay us? So it's going to, so that's an ongoing discussion. So I wish I had a more concrete answer for you, but that's still up in the air. I don't know how it's going to pan out. And so we're just not sure. We're not sure how things are going to, um, are going to matriculate over the next couple of weeks. Obviously, you know, you saw the bottom line on ESPN about Kansas making, you know, the cuts with the AD and Bill Self and the football coach. You know, to, just to save five hundred dollars in in revenue, I'm sure it's going to be some other schools, you know, following suit. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it's going to pan out. To be honest with you. Oh, I think there's going to be, a, and this is just my opinion, yeah. a lot of support staff roles at uh, low major Division ones. I think you're going to, you know, they're going to cut budget. You're going to see a lot of assistant SIDs uh, losing jobs. Yeah. But, you know, and have interns. This is my opinion. Um, so have you and you might not know the answer because I don't know how much of the scheduling you do versus yeah. Coach Moten or you know who who does that. But uh, have teams reached out and tried to get a home and home versus a guarantee game with you? I've spoken to a couple quote unquote low major uh, assistants who deal with the scheduling and they've said you know other mid majors and high majors have kind of approached them with that. So I wasn't sure if they, yeah, just done because, that you, you know, the thing about it was even before I got on the schedule was basically done last year for this year. So there wasn't much discussion. There were a couple of games that we were trying to, you know, that we were trying to fill, but uh, there were a couple of approaches about um, home and home, but you got to think about, we're trying to fill a budget as well. We're trying to generate some revenue as well. So, uh, like I said, most of the scheduling is done. We're looking for, you know, for one more. So hopefully we can get that done here in the next, you know, couple of weeks. Hope, you know, hopefully, hopefully. Uh, okay, awesome. Um, what organizations are you involved with as far as coaching goes? And what additionally, what do you do additionally um, to help grow the game? So I'm part of the uh, NABC. Um have been part of the Black Coaches Association. Um, and so those are the, probably the two organizations that, you know, I have been actively with since I started, I started coaching. Um, as far as growing the game is concerned, I think platforms like this are great ways to grow the game, especially during the COVID, you know, especially now. Um, you, you doing this is so important. I'm not sure how many people listen to it. Hopefully, you know, we can get some people to listen to it. Hopefully there's some tidbits and some nuggets that, you know, are thrown out from this conversation that can help uh, guys. But the COVID has been so good for me because uh, in this way, and I think we all got to pull positives out of negative situations, but how much time have coaches now been on webinars, Zoom conversations, uh, and those type of platforms just to learn? Because during this time now will be you know, live period times. And, you know, obviously at the final four, they have the NABC has the, uh, the on-court presentations and the classroom presentation and stuff like that. But you're talking about over a four or five day period. There's so many other people, you know, you're trying to get to one on-court presentation. You're still trying to enjoy the festivities. You're trying to go have lunch with guys. And then you're trying to catch other things. You're trying to, you know, there's so many other things. And so you pulled in so many different directions. But now with all these free online Zoom conversations, and we have nothing but time. We're all confined to the house. We're all having conversations like this. 
Um, there, there's so many, you know, platforms online to, to learn and to grow. Um, I just want to try to share my story because I think we all have a story. You have a story. You have a um, I hope my journey and my story can inspire somebody else because there's always somebody out there trying to, you know, hey, I'm trying to get to where you are or I'm trying to get to where, where, where you before young coaches, older coaches who are trying to get involved in the game. And I think we all need to encourage one another. It's coaches helping coaches. We all have to give. We got to be a big fraternity. So if you're talking about a big organization, I think there needs to be an organization just of coaches, which is, you know, which is the NABC. Uh, but, you know, we need to have more platforms like this. And I'm so happy to see this because there was a time where I felt like on the men's side, we weren't doing these type of things because guys were afraid to share. They were afraid to share ideas because they thought they were giving out secrets. They thought they were giving the, the, the magic potion, the magic formula to other programs to kind of figure out, you know, how they do it and how they get it done. Well, there's no secrets in this game. There's no secrets. I mean, you know, everybody kind of takes ideas. We all thieves. We all take ideas and we kind of put our own spin on it. Um, but this is what we need. This is how the game grows because we share we try to help one another. And if guys don't have their own personal agendas, you know, obviously we're all trying to be successful. We all want to be uh, doing, you know, be involved in the game and doing it for reasons to be able to take care of our families. But um, if you're doing those things for the wrong reason, then you're not going to reap any benefits from it. And so I'm willing to share. I'm, I'm a continuous learner. I want to learn all the time. So I'm on Zooms. I'm on uh, <laughs> all types of stuff in the morning before the girls wake up, before we had to start doing their e-learning in the morning, I'm trying to learn something. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to log on. Like I said before, I'm not, <laughs> I don't do anything else. You know, all these hardwood classic games are on. Synergy is a big thing. So I'm on Synergy all the time, looking up old games. And so, you know, just sharing ideas, picking the brains of coaches, being open to share ideas with coaches. Um, I think that's the best way to grow the game. Okay. No, that's great stuff. Um, what do you attribute to the relatively low number of black head coaches in NCAA Division One basketball? Um, I just think opportunities. I just think that, you know, um, the opportunities to, to, to get them, the opportunities to put um, black coaches in positions to be around administrators, um, having opportunities at lower, I guess, lower positions on staff and have the ability to work their way, you know, work their way up. Uh, at the end of the day, coaching is coaching. Um, you know, I just think that you have to put yourself in front of the right people to get those opportunities. And, you know, I hate to put things around race, but I mean, th this is what it is. You know, we're starting to see a growing number, but, you know, when things work, when people see success in other individuals, that might open up the idea for other opportunities. So, you know, there, there was a, I think there was an influx of probably minority hirings, probably after, you know, Shaka had his run at the final four. Um, this year, you know, this may trigger it with Anthony Grant being, you know, national coach of the year. Will that trigger? But I just think that, you know, there's so many different ways to get involved in the business. Um, I just think that uh, having those lower level opportunities early on on staffs and working their ways up and being in front of big time administrators, being in front of athletic directors, 
you know, we just got to have that platform to be out there. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned you watch a lot of synergy and, you know, before the kids get up. So a lot of that time is, is what time roughly? Like yeah, 4 a.m., you know, 6 a.m.? And, and this is just sacrifice. Um, obviously, I, you know, I got to give my kids their time. And every, I think everybody's schedule is off due to COVID. Everybody's sleep schedule is off. I know mine is off. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know what time it is, man. But you I never just, sleep. You know what? Have I, you I ever gotten, gotten eight the full hours, eight hours uh, maybe, during maybe the once or twice during the COVID, to be honest with you? Um, and I probably haven't done before. I just think that after we had children, um, I just think that, you know, when we had children the first time, I was up late just trying to get the baby to go to sleep and then up early because I had to be at the office. I just think that at that point, um, my body just got adjusted to it. And then I'm just an early person anyway. My mother was an early riser, so I think she kind of groomed me just to get up early. Um, and I, I, it's not healthy. I don't recommend that to anybody. I just, I just don't need a lot of rest. Um, I probably get average maybe four or five hours, maybe. You know, probably less. I don't know, maybe probably around four. And I think I'm ready to go. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, but I, I'm enthused to get up because I enjoy and I love what I do. I just think that when you have jobs, when you dread going into work, or you, you know, you're always looking at the clock about what time you get off. That's why I'm just so blessed to be in this position because I love what I do. I love the game. I want to eat it. I want to sleep. You know, I want to watch it. I'm always intrigued. And I like to work when I have some quiet time. So, you know, while my wife is asleep, I got to give her her time. I got to give the kids her time. So the only time I really get to really dive into that stuff is when they're asleep. And so that's late at night or early in the morning. And sometimes it kind of just it kind of just carries over. See, and, and you were the first person I thought of. I don't know if you remember, I reached out to you probably at like, 2 a.m. or something. I didn't sleep the entire night, but I was like, Nigel, I'm sure you're going to read this at some point. <laughs> I, in do, the next couple I do remember hours. that. I do. Yep. You remember, yep. remember this? For the listeners, so I was recruiting a kid mm-hmm. at Division three level for two yep. and a half years. For the most part, that's unheard of. Right. Because if they're that good as a sophomore, junior, you're not getting them. Recruiting this kid. And VMI yep. was probably in the area, Virginia Military yep. Institute. I love those coaches over there. So, knock <laughs> on them. Mm-hmm. They were in the area, and they stopped by for a workout. Take a picture of the mm-hmm. kid. I see it online. I reach out to the kid. It's a trainer. I ended up basically being a handler. Mm-hmm. But, hey, man, what's the deal? Oh, you know, they're showing interest. And I'm I'm losing sleep now. I'm like, right. this is not a good fit for this kid. This young man. Mm-hmm. doesn't you know it, it's not a good fit and i reached yep. out to you and i'm like yeah Thomas, like help like help me through this i'm like know that you've been there before and man i don't even think i think like maybe 30 minutes an hour later yep. i see you know it's been seen that message yeah you got back and like i still didn't sleep that night but the next i slept like a baby and it was strictly because of you man like i owe you so much be- and I know it sounds like, you know, a small hey, listen, story that, man, you know, that I, was, I just that think that, time, you know, um, we all have to do it. We all have to, you know, those are those moments. And I, I remember that that kind of, that text conversation distinctly. But 
it's those moments that we need to have each other's back. And I think that's when you really true find true relationships and friendships in this business, because you're always going to get those guys who um, send you texts and, you know, compliment you after a big win or after, after a championship. Yep. Congrats. And yeah. Merry Christmas. All, you know, all yeah. Those, yeah. But all what I go back to is the people that reached out to me when I lost my Langston and who were constantly checking on me and constantly, you know, I uh, say, Nigel, just thinking about you. Have you found anything? Can I help you with anything? Uh, because I lost a lot of people in that mix who were fans of me. Before, you know, fans, when I say they were always, you know, had, had my back. But when you don't have a job, it's like, where are those people then? But um, I just think that in this business, when you find true yep. friendship and you can have somebody to lean on to kind of help you get through those times, um, I'm only doing, you know, what somebody did for me. And I just think that, you know, you got to kind of put yourself in that person's shoes because as stressful as that was for you, even though we're not going through it personally at that time, we've been we all been there before and we can all connect and we can all relate. And so what words can I provide to just, you know, to try to keep him encouraged, keep them encouraged. And um, so did you get the kid? <laughs> uh-huh. So the kid ended up get this. So with, this is just my typical mm-hmm. luck. The oh, day that he man. committed to us, our head coach let go. And so I tweet out before, cause mm-hmm. I, I think I had, Worked overnight, maybe. Yeah, I worked overnight, mm-hmm. and I tweet out something like, "Great day to be a cardinal." I fall. I get a text from my old boss, like, "Yeah." So I guess you're happy your coach mm-hmm. got let go, something like that. I'm like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" I, you know, I, I look. I have like five text messages. Staff, I yeah. just want to let you guys know I've been really, you know, like that. I'm wow. just like, wow. so I go delete that tweet real quick, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and I have stayed in touch. He ended up going to a prep school and I'm helping him through the recruiting process right now, yeah. whether it's going to be a, a division one walk on or division yeah. two, division three. Um, some JUCOs have reached out, but yeah, See, and that's why, for him. And that's why I have so I much respect for him because, so much, you know, you could have just, you know, Hey, the situation didn't work out. You know, it was unfortunate for you guys as a staff, but you didn't just leave that kid to the wayside. And that's where genuine relationships come into play. Like you're still trying to help this kid now. And there's no direct correlation, at least staff to player wise, um, and just trying to help. And, and like you just said, you have so much love for the kid and, and for the family. That's what this is about. And, you know, just to be around, you know, and be connected with genuine people like you, like you're another guy who doesn't sleep. I don't know how many gyms you visited this year, how many games or practices that you were at, but I was following you like crazy. And I was just, I was wishing I could do what you were doing. Um, and because you were, in there so how how many gyms did you make it to this year i don't know how many trips you made to i mean good. i don't know how many gyms i know that i made yep. uh 56 games at a college wow uh, went to probably 10 or so high school games went to 20 plus practices workouts um i put an insane amount of miles on my car to the point where my dad was like Hey, um, yeah. Yeah. what's the the warranty on yours? Or you know, check with the tire. Like, wow, Dad, I blew past wow. that like yeah. two months ago. <laughs> so I probably 
put like yeah. five. But there's no sacrifices right there. Like where so that's what I'm saying. You're always being watched. You're always on stage, and people see that. People see it, and people are you know, and, and that goes into their memory bank, and that's something they can like. He has a genuine love for this game and is willing to do whatever uh, just to be around it, to learn and to grow. So I, I, I thought that was myself when I would see that and see you put that out like, man, he's all over the place. Like what, where hasn't he been? And that was just so when you don't think you're inspiring somebody, you know, you are because <laughs> you inspire me. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, I've met a lot of great people through the game of basketball, you being one of them. And, you know, for the most part, those tickets were taken care of. Uh, a few places I had to pay for them, but, uh, yep. you know, whether it was just, you know, hey, coach, just wanted to, you know, thank you so much for the ticket. Yep. Um, you know, dapping up with guys after the game. Uh, just saying, hey, yeah, tough one. You know, I, I don't like talking after losses. So, yep. hey, man, you know, t- take care of business next time. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Know, I'm glad that I inspire some people, um, you know, this practice score yeah. and just trying to, I won't even say people are like, oh, what are you doing it for? Are you trying to stay relevant? Are you trying to, you know, live, you know, I did yep. a little, some live scouting for some teams in the non-conference, but I just like observing whether it's coaches' demeanors, the assistants, the support staff, the head coach, uh, just how right. they coach in games and then in practice and just taking notes and, I took yeah. more notes this year than I did at most mm-hmm. clinics I've been at. I've been at a few clinics this year as well. Um, we're wow. going on almost two hours, which I didn't know if we were going to have yeah. like 20 minutes. We we're going to have an hour. Well, let's go. And I feel, yeah. you know, if I didn't have the timer in front of yeah. me yep. on the app, I'd, I'd be like, oh, man, we've only been talking 20 minutes. Um, yep. So let's try to have a, a rapid fire here. Oh, my um, goodness. Funniest oh, thing Coach man. Moten has said during the season. <laughs> it, it's been so many. Oh man, that won't get me in trouble. Name oh, one that man. won't get um, you in trouble or him in trouble. Oh, uh, see, let me say this first. Um, I think that's what makes Coach Moten the the coach that he is because he doesn't take himself too serious, and I just think that's a good way to keep kids connected, um, to keep. Um, uh, you know, just keep them engaged because if if, if players see um, a coach taking himself too serious or just taking the game too serious, at the end of the day, it's a game. But the way he's able to, you know, break uh, moments when it's, it seems tense, uh, I'm going to come back to that one because I got to make sure one is appropriate. So, I mean, if, <laughs> I, so let's come back to that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Name it doesn't have to be the best, but name a really good high school coach that you've seen when you're out recruiting, probably that no one's heard of, and just as far um, as like in-game coaching. So any coach come to mind? So many of them. Um, oh my goodness. In-game, good coach. Um, wow. Wow! 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 Dang, I feel so biased because it's so many good. Oh man, I, I don't. Yeah, you're right. Um, I know, and you don't want to lose I would your say Great Queen like, Highland yeah, High School, and then I'm not being biased right uh, towards AJ Fry. Um, but Brett Queen, 
Hoggard High School just because I've seen so many of his practices. Um, the way he, he, he runs his practices like college practice, the skill development piece that he puts on, and I know this is supposed to be rapid fire, but his in-game adjustments, the way he, you know, he's an X and O <laughs> strategy, game planning, scouting reports. So I would say Brett Queen, uh, Hoggard High School in Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay, uh, quick thoughts on uh, um, North Carolina A&T leaving for the Big good, South. Yeah, good. I, I would say good for for the Big South. If, if you're, even I would say not so good for uh, not so good for the MEAC because I just think with that rivalry, I think that's one of the biggest in-state rivalries. Okay, true. Any um, shows I'm binge watching? Any right shows now. you're binge watching um, right now? My wife had me watching Tiger King on Netflix, and I, I, I'm trying to get into it, but you know it, it's tough. Um, yeah, it, after crazy. like the third, yeah. Fourth so episode, I would say you're like, holy, like all these guys. Um, are so we were on probably episode. Okay. What, what episode uh, are you five, on now? I maybe on episode five. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep. So kill that, her husband. By that yep. point, did Carol Baskin kill her husband? Okay. I think so. I, I mean, he, wait, he just, man just disappeared. No I mean, he's just, you know, he's just gone. How did that happen? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Three um, guests you should have on this podcast. Three guests that I should um, have on this podcast. <laughs> LaBelle Moulton, uh, Reggie Sharp, Brian Graves. So you're talking about the rest of the staff of North Carolina Central University. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. Okay. Okay. Might need your help with that one, but uh, okay. Take that. Yep. Okay, let's play. Uh, start bench okay. cut. You got to start one. You got to bench one. You got to cut one. What was the first one? Cookout, Zaxby, Zaxby's, okay. and Chick Fil A. Um, ooh, Cookout. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start Zaxby's. I'm gonna bench uh, Chick Fil A, and I'm gonna cut Cookout. Okay. Okay. Um, Ooh, Alonzo Mourning, um, Shaq, Patrick Ewing. Well, I think because they are all part of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity. You know why I chose those guys? Um, yeah. So uh, I'm going to start Shaq. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to bench Patrick Ewing, and I'm going to cut. Unfortunately, I'm going to cut Zoe. Zoe See, but Patrick he, he, Ewing, I think, is the only one like, who is an Omega. Um, no, it doesn't. I, Does it that doesn't. Change your it doesn't. Um, but uh, but Pat Ewing, <laughs> um, just because it was my era, okay, you know, as an '80s baby and seeing him. But you know, Alonzo, I just don't think offensively skilled as Pat Ewing. I mean, Pat Ewing had the dominant turnaround, fadeaway jump shot, and still protect the rim. You know, tremendous rebounder, dog, and he gave my Bulls fits. You know, so. Ooh. Okay. Uh, Hoop Dirt, um, verbal commits, transfer portal. Transfer portal, I'm starting. Verbal commits, I am uh, benching and then cutting Hoop Dirt. But Hoop Dirt, keeps you, but Hoop Dirt keeps, you, keeps you in the loop on some things, though, man. I, used, I mean, I love Hoop Dirt, but love you, Adam, to keep my yeah. job, I better be on top of that portal. I know that much. Yeah. 
Um, yes, sir. Okay, flats, drums, tips. Ooh, um, starting. I'm starting drums, uh, benching, benching temp, tips, and uh, cutting flaps. Good man. man. Yeah. See, that's why I like you, Nigel. I same way. Okay. Um, Traditional guy. I don't think any fruit why, belongs why on on pizza. That's just me. I mean, but I, I'm I'm the basic guy, so it's only you know sausage for me anyway. So definitely not doing any pineapple on pizza. Okay. Great um, stuff. Any questions for me before you, you? Uh, we wrap How up? How do you think over this year, you know, having the, the chance to go out there and uh, observe practices? Well, I'm going to break this down into what have you learned about yourself? And who are the top three head coaches that impressed you most on the college level, going to see them practice, coach, game, whatever? <laughs> Woo. I think that answer might uh blackball me from yep. a few jobs. Yep. But uh hey no, uh, listen, you answered everything, I'm gonna answer everything as well. Um first how resilient I am, uh how a lot of people I know who you know are out for a year, they just they throw in the towel. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I got you know, I'm trying to start a family. Oh, I can't uh you know, I can't afford to, you know, I got to, I got to pay yep. the bills. You know, I found a nine to five warehouse job that, you know, <laughs> I don't love, but you know, it, I find, you know, that if I go in early, you know, you know leave a little mm -hmm. bit early some days and, you know, drive down to Charlotte, make it to a Davidson game. Uh, yep. Coaches that I've learned the most in game or in practice. Um, I know he was just uh, let go at Wake Forest, but Danny Manning is one of the, best basketball IQs, uh, knowledgeable, just player development, in-game coaching. I really like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a tough situation over there. Mm -hmm. I won't get into that, but, uh, Danny Manning, Wes Miller, uh, who that guy had, this wasn't cockiness, the most confidence I have ever seen a head coach have and just believing mm -hmm. what he was saying. He was all in sweat equity, um, every player was looking at him, you know, both eyes looking at him every time he spoke, mm -hmm. uh, it, he could easily run a fortune 500 yep. company. And he was just blown away by him. Uh, third one. God, that's tough. Um, I'll go ahead and say my guy, uh, okay. Kevin Easley, uh, down at life. I drove down, uh, to visit a, a buddy of mine and his uh, new wife and, and I attended a practice there Yep. and I was just, it was my first NAI practice that I've attended and, you know, just seeing one, the facility, mm -hmm. but and two, how he handled uh, film prior to practice, everything had a reason. And, and, you know, he said he had his, uh, mm -hmm. I forget what he called him, but you know, his to-do list, his, his housekeeping and he had to, take care of X and, and Y and Z. And he did it every practice. And I, I was really impressed just to, you know, how, you know, no coach stays on schedule as far as, okay, we're going to do this at the you know, 10 minute mark, 20, but how he fit everything in, how he put together the practice. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking with him afterwards with a buddy of mine from the Carolina camp, uh, coach Wong, um, and just, 
you know, kind of giving us the yep. the why on everything that he did. And I just, I was really blown away. Um, he was an assistant at High Point when I was there. I didn't get to know him right. really until afterwards. Uh, but kind of like you, through social media, uh, you know, we do it for the right reasons and uh, yep. develop relationships. I still remember, and I know you do because you have a great memory. We're going to the Buzz Williams. Yep. Uh, Virginia Tech camp. I yep. think I tweeted out like, yep. "Hey, roll call." Yep. Coach NIT responded, "Okay." And uh, we linked up over there, and uh, I oh, noticed your goodness. notes were a lot but more detailed so much, than mine. Man. His, what, and, and that just and, and that just goes back to <laughs> and that just goes back to relationships even during camp. it was more like than our like relationship started college. at camp. You know what I mean? And so that's why camp situation. What what, what year was that? What yep. year was that? Was that um? And how many years ago was that? Oh man, could that be? Okay, yeah, it was like 2017. It was right after so, centenary, so it you know, have been and like look 2017 how maybe? our relationship has grown. But I mean, just that camp situation, being around there, we're all trying to be there, trying to learn, trying to be around. I mean, and honestly, the only reason I did that camp, <laughs> I hate to say it, but the only reason I did that camp was to get that that get better type of experience, because I want to hear. Buzz talk. I want to see him up close. I want to see yep. Tech work out. Um, and, and honestly, that was really the main reasons I would do camp anyway, because I want to see, you know, like you said, you want to see those guys in their element. You want to see how they teach, how they communicate, how they organize. Um, and, I, you know, I did um, – I worked um, Winthrop camp two years ago. And the way Pat Kelsey – uh, ran that camp the way his energy was I'm talking about he was fired up the staff had to be there at seven o'clock in the morning but he was fired up and he was on point energy wise the whole day every station every breakdown drill every game he was refing and then he went through a workout a team workout with his you know with his team afterwards you know, that just showed me that when you are all in, you're going to get the most out of out of your guys. So that that was impressive. That was impressive. That's great. Nigel, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time uh, to grow the game, to inspire others, to, you know, kind of walk yeah, us through so, your journey. Um, on social media, uh, how can on Twitter. How follow you uh, on social media? At Coach N-I- at coach nit on twitter and then on instagram uh coach n thomas uh so that's on ig and i got a facebook i don't know how many people still do facebook it's just nigel thomas it's a picture of me my wife and you know, our three girls so you can find me on there but um if you want to email me my email is n thomas 44 at nccu.edu so you know hit me up you know questions anything you can give me i'm always trying to learn i'm always trying to gather information but i don't want to be a, a person who's just always asking so i'm willing to give 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 you know to whoever wants to give but you know dk i just appreciate this platform and the opportunity man it's a i just feel honored and privileged that you would even reach out and ask me to be on this this is great i look forward to following you know future episodes um and so you know whatever i can do but th to answer your story <laughs> To answer your question about the coach Moden, best thing he's ever said. Um, so, no, no, no. So, um, uh, I, I was going to let you off the hook. But he okay, was talking to one of our players, 
and it was doing a practice, and this was probably my first week in practice. And now you're talking about the guys have already been through workouts and they've been through practice. They got a routine, and uh, we're going through a shooting drill, and a guy just wasn't holding his follow through. And he, you know, you know, when you get about 30 seconds to shoot, and the guy's just getting constant reps on the shot, but he was shooting, wasn't holding his follow through, and he just wouldn't do it. So after the clock went off. He calls the young man over and says, why don't you just listen to me? Like, you know, I know what a, a good shooter looks like on every night. <laughs> and so obviously he was talking about himself. But just the way, <laughs> I mean, his, his, his sarcasm, his wittiness, the way he's, you know, he, he, he comes and kind of, you know, comes with stuff. It's just, it's, it really keeps the mood of practice upbeat and, and always on point. But when he said that, man, he said, I sleep one with it every night. I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought he was talking about his wife, but he was talking about himself. So that was, that was funny because it was, you know, it didn't seem like it was planned. He just, he it just, that's just how he is. Just, you know, we're quick with it, you know, really spontaneous with his responses, but, you know, good dude. And he gave me opportunity. So I'm blessed. Uh, well, I definitely look forward to following your success individually and as a team next season. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, you guys get that last game scheduled. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate over this it, man. Pandemic and get back to. All right. Be safe. Hooping.